0: This is Brand & New, from the International Trademark Association. This podcast series explores changes and dynamics in the legal world, now and tomorrow, with a focus on intellectual property. Welcome
1: to Brand & New, I am Audrey Dove. News reports have never been as science-oriented as they tend to be these days, testing capacities hospital medical equipment, potential treatments, and vaccine research are all over the news and it seems that it's going to stay that way for some time given the pretty direct and tangible stake that the public at large has in all those discussions. And as a consequence, pharmaceuticals and life sciences companies are suddenly expected to deliver solutions to solve a major worldwide health crisis. But is it really their role? and should privately funded innovation necessarily fulfill public health policy needs? My guests today are Marc Altorf and Emmanuel Gouget, both partners at the law firm Pinsent Messons, respectively in Munich and Paris. They are both specialized in intellectual property law, advising international companies on their IP management, development, and enforcement strategies. Marc has been working for the Life Sciences Practice of international law firms for over 20 years, and is now the head of IP and life sciences for Germany at Pinsent Messens. Emmanuel has also over 20 years of experience as an IP attorney with experience in the UK, in France and in Belgium. He leads the intellectual property department. Today, our guests share with us their perspective on the very unique situation the life sciences sector finds itself into these days, in between the private market dynamics and the imperatives of global health policies and the public interest. So thank you very much, Mark. Thank you, Emmanuel, for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Audrey. Thank you very much, Audrey.
1: So with rapid testing kits, face masks, 3D printed ventilators, drugs, or vaccines, Everyone is staring at the life science sector right now, with hope that it will develop and distribute fast and efficient solutions. But for you, is it realistic to expect from pharmaceutical labs and other healthcare companies to provide solutions to a public health crisis?
3: I'm not sure whether there is a mutually reinforcing dynamic between privately funded R&D efforts and and the public interest. But of course, it It seems reasonable to ask who else should contribute in solving a public health crisis if not the key life sciences players, meaning governments, sick funds and, of course, pharmaceutical manufacturers, medical device companies and labs. The key point for me seems to be on what terms such companies should contribute. For example, we have just advised a manufacturer of molecular tests on a cooperation with the Bavarian government regarding the development of a rapid diagnostic test for coronavirus antibodies. Certainly, that is a project that's beneficial to everybody and everybody is happy to contribute. And I'm sure that all pharma and medical device companies are willing to help. And many of them do actually help already individually and more and more in different forms of cooperation.
2: I really concur with what what you were saying with maybe a, a, a bit of more optimistic uh, notes to the extent that you say we cannot avoid having pharma companies jumping in there. And, and it's true, but it, it's even more than that. Uh, the impression these days is that in this major crisis, uh, we can see a number of very innovative initiative in the way the stakeholders do cooperate and work and search in a way together. I think we will see later on some of these initiatives, whether that's from big pharma, whether that's from smaller biotech startup companies also together with public research. I would take one example of them. This is one in France whereby we've seen uh, one major biotech association, uh, France Biotech, setting up a platform called the Coalition Innovation Santé Crise Sanitaire, whereby the purpose of that in this initiative Created um, late March is to foster innovative solution to look and find solution to treat the uh, COVID-19 disease. And there you would find startup companies, but also public research, hospitals and big pharma such as AstraZeneca. And the purpose for them is to bring these people together to be fast and to grant some financial support to these innovative projects. So this is not to say this is new, but clearly what is, in my view, new is the pace. The the reason there, it has been done quickly and with very direct and immediate objectives.
1: Mm-hmm. And on the ground, uh, many pharma companies and medical technology companies uh, around the world are working effortlessly uh, to alleviate the impact of the pandemic. Do you have a sense of the way most of them intend to give access to the drugs or medical devices they hopefully will deliver in the coming months in terms of licensing model?
3: I think we, we haven't seen a really groundbreaking new approach there. However, the amount of cooperation projects we are seeing is, is certainly unrivaled. I mean, there are cooperation projects uh, wherever you look. There is uh, the Call 21 project of the Innovative Medicines Initiative, uh, which is the largest public-private partnership uh, in Europe on development of therapeutics and diagnostics uh, combating coronavirus. Uh, Zanofi and GSK joining forces as uh, very large vaccine manufacturers. There yeah, are open access projects in Germany, but also on the EU level to create single hubs for, for publicly available or freely usable information, innovations and, and R&D results. And there are many more, of course. Yeah. What is truly interesting, I think, it's um, that lots of the projects involve sharing, sharing of information, sharing of data and sharing of intellectual property the willingness to share and even make IP publicly available is certainly is certainly new. And maybe that is even something that came through through this corona crisis and that can really transform the industry on a long-term basis.
1: And how do you see this transformation of the industry?
3: These models too, for example, open innovation models existed also before, but uh, have they been used quite often uh, so far? No. And, and I think this is, this is a good development, actually, because combining efforts uh, should normally lead uh, to uh, really reduced costs, reduced efforts for everybody. And uh, this is then certainly also good uh, for the very stressed uh, healthcare systems that we have around the world at the moment.
2: And I think in a way, Mark, you, you're right in saying that this, this concept of open innovation has been to a certain extent a kind of buzzword, But here, this is a true challenge to test this open innovation approach and to see whether pharma companies are really open to share the the results. And as you're saying it's also under probably also some sort of public opinion pressure and you you mentioned some scheme which are largely in the press like the one between GSK and Sanofi but we've seen also a number of companies recently having had to to share in a way their IP whether that's uh, AbbVie, whether their uh, celexta product whether that's roche or, or Gilead Sciences, with their rem- Remdesivir, we, we see that they have to, and they will, and and they want to uh, to share, whether that's spontaneously or whether then this is under some sort of public opinion pressure, so to say. But also your your question, I think, Audrey, was around uh, whether we can see some transformation in terms of licensing models. So mm-hmm. one. Has, has been has been raised with, with some sort of open innovation approach. But I think also what we can see is that in the present context, the uh, licensing uh, uh, models or, or licensing agreement that are being put in place uh, currently have to be done on a very quick basis. When I say quick, we have to be efficient. These projects are meant to deliver success and results as fast as possible. So the way the, the licensing agreements have to be drafted as also to reflect this, to be simple, to be efficient and not to waste time with unnecessary provisions. And that's probably where we have today more than ever to go to the point.
1: And that's true that many companies are already working alongside each other to pull their teams their know how their technology and IP to take up the current research challenges. As an example, Novartis and other life sciences companies have openly committed to share their expertise uh, and their assets uh, to fight against the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, alongside with Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the World Health Organization expressed its support to IP pooling initiatives uh, through stressing the need to include developing countries in the discussions. As a lawyer, what are the legal challenges you see in such collaborations? particularly from an IP perspective?
2: I think the uh, this has been something already developed for some treatment in the past. Uh, we've seen that for um, so medicine patent pools for the treatment of HIV. And even though the, the, the patent pool is not the kind of uh, magic solution, it, it certainly brings in the current context, again, some of the expected solutions. So you've seen also some of the public initiatives Such as the one raised by that was the president of Costa Rica, the creation who suggested the creation of of pools of rights to here to test to medicine and to vaccines with free access or licensing on reasonable and affordable terms. And it's true that that's something that has been more developed in other areas, in other sectors, like the telecom and electronics, where you would find traditionally uh, the approach whereby you need to have patent right holders to pool their rights together into one single vehicle, the patent pool. Uh, Here, we're coming to this probably here on a more effective way in the life science sector with this COVID-19 pandemic. It's, It's something which now will certainly develop. What will matter, obviously, is the terms which will govern the pooling of IP rights and the way the pool will be managed. And the way the IP rights will be effectively accessible to third parties on a royalty free basis, on some sort of fair, reasonable, non discriminatory basis, these will be the sort of challenges to be sought
3: and addressed. Patent pooling is, of course, one of the options for cooperating. And like other measures, it can lead to cost reductions and really to reduction of the individual efforts. From a pool member perspective, crucial legal questions include normally what happens to the intellectual property to provide it, to be provided to the pool, meaning do I lose it entirely? Do I only give it up for certain procedures or treatments? How can the pool members use and exploit newly created intellectual property? And all of this needs, of course, very thorough drafting in order to avoid later disputes. And then, of course, the pool uh, as such uh, and the relationships of the pool with third parties uh, need to be compliant with competition law. And for most jurisdictions, there are laws and guidelines for patent pooling. Uh, For example, in the EU, uh, the the technology uh, transfer block exemption and related guidelines of the EU commission apply. And the guiding principles may be summarized uh, as a necessity for the pool to be accessible and to act on a fair, reasonable, and and non-discriminatory basis.
0: Mm -hmm. INTA is a global association representing more than 30,000 brand owners and professionals dedicated to supporting trademarks and related intellectual property to foster consumer trust, economic growth, and innovation.
1: I would like now to have your views on what policymakers are doing. In a rather expected way, policymakers are also developing their own tools to make sure any groundbreaking innovation, such as COVID-19 treatment, drugs, or even vaccines, if and when developed, would get the broadest and fastest distribution possible. And several countries have been exploring legislative routes, providing for exceptions to the traditional monopoly owned by IP rights holders, and we already mentioned that. But do you have examples in your jurisdictions of some IP-related legislation enacted to provide any emergency access mechanisms or anything that you consider relevant in the present context?
3: Yes, I think we see this in uh, indeed many countries. Um, For example, in the UK, you will find in the patent law what is called the Crown use. Exemption, which allows the government to use uh, patents for services of the ground. So, for example, for, for the NHS in the context to fight the coronavirus. And this would be uh, against a certain remuneration, but uh, in fact, the UK government could make use of, of third party patents. Also in the UK, you see something that is truly entirely uh, new and has just been announced a few days ago, which I call the shield. What is that? Uh, The UK government announced to indemnify designers and manufacturers of rapidly manufactured ventilators against third-party IP claims. And by the way, also against product liability claims. The details uh, of the program need to be disclosed, but it's clear that the government will indemnify uh, such manufacturers against third-party claims. In Germany, for example, we also have an exemption in patent law allowing the government to make use of patents, also of utility models and supplementary protection certificates for pharmaceuticals, medical devices and the like if the government has uh, declared a state of emergency, actually a nationwide state of emergency, and the German government has done this on 28th of March. So basically in Germany and in the UK, the traditional models are quite aligned. What we also find uh, in both countries is provisions on compulsory licensing regimes, but I would not think that such regimes are really Good at this moment because uh, they are very complex and the timelines uh, are really not suitable to fight a crisis. And finally, I think what we should not forget is that there are a a number of private or contractual uh, measures available to fight the crisis, uh, like what we just discussed, patent pooling, uh, waivers to uh, not to enforce IP rights, open innovation models, and indeed, of course, we mentioned this also before, the good old license contract where parties just need to to agree on the terms and conditions of a license and all of that can help to fight against uh, the crisis
2: and it's true that there are probably two different and complementary approach one being the so-called compulsory license whereby as, as the name suggests, there is a license and potentially and, and possibly uh, uh, also royalty being paid to the right holder. But as you were mentioning, very often these, these regimes are complex, difficult to put in place. And even though a number of legislation do include and provide for such a regime, uh, when we look at the actual situation, we can see a very, very limited illustration. Industries do not easily enter into these, these compulsory schemes. But the other one, as you were mentioning, is the an exception regime and linked to uh, a state of sanitary emergency as the one we were experiencing these days. It may sound tough in a way in respect to IP rights, but at some point, the issue is what does or what should prevail? So the, the challenge in a way is to combine the, the rights of the IP right holders with a sanitary and public interest objectives. Uh, This would similarly apply in many other countries, whether it's Canada, Chile, Australia, who either have some existing legislation or have adopted recently some emergency legislation.
1: Do you see uh, any risk uh, that these policies could backfire and hinder um, research and development efforts?
2: This has been a long-standing debate, in a way, whether these sort of compulsory licensing or exception regime would hinder and limit research and development, and so that, for example, companies would locate their research and development elsewhere in a country whereby these sort of measures would would not exist. Experience shows that this is not really the case. It has not been been so far something which would hinder and limit R&D efforts.
3: I think so too. I mean, we must remain realistic. I think it's very good that we have those regimes which would allow government uh, to make use of patents and and similar intellectual property rights in order to have a sort of an an emergency uh, basket for measures. But if you look at Germany, for example, how often have such exemptions been applied in real life? I I mean, I, I would say in Germany, in the last 50 years probably uh, five exemptions is already a very high estimate and would indeed uh, include compulsory licenses which which is a more uh, contractual tool so therefore i i don't see that there is a real risk that these uh, so-called emergency policies or exemptions uh, could backfire and ultimately hinder hinder r&d efforts
2: as an initial remark what we see is also that these legislative provisions, these regimes, are often used as, as more uh, as a tool. I wouldn't call them a threat, but industry would then prefer to enter into negotiation and find a contractual solution. Uh, the most recent one, the Kaletra, produced by ABVI, whereby Israel was uh, threatening, in a way, to enter such a regime. And finally, ABVI decided to, uh, to give up its uh, global IP rights on this uh, antiviral uh, drug. So that's an illustration of how a country may invoke an emergency patent suspension clause, whereby then the industry then would voluntarily, in a way, commit into the public interest.
1: Uh, now I have a few rapid-fire questions for you. What is the most amazing innovation for you
2: these days? Everything that would relate to obviously health. But also to the way we deal with our environment will continue to be key, even more than ever. If I take my personal view in there, I think that's all. What has been around solar energy innovation has been one of the most striking and amazing innovation, in my view.
3: Not mentioning specifically one, but in that space certainly my favorite still the, the invention of the printing press in around about 1439 be, be, because it really enabled modern life as, as we know it today.
1: Could, could you name a word that would summarize the last decade and the one you expect for the decade that is just beginning?
3: Well, of course, to ask lawyers to summarize something in one word is a challenge. <laughs> but uh, if, if we look to the last decade, for me, maybe the word could be change. I mean, if we look back 10 years, the way we work changed, the way we communicated and actually the way, the way we live. Uh, a lot of the sharing economy came up in the last 10 years. So, so change could be really the word. For the next one, I think it's digitalization. Of course, there is a lot of digital uh, already around, but I think this will enormously progress in the next 10 years. If I I had to quote some um,
2: for the past change, I like it, but I think to some extent also blind because we've been blind on some of the reality. And now for the next decade, I think digitalization will help facing the reality and tackling the reality. That would be some of the word in my view for the next decade.
1: Thank you. And the last question is uh, maybe you would have a piece of advice to help lawyers overcome the challenging periods ahead.
2: Stay calm and confident, and be creative.
3: That's truly really a good one. Uh, I think when it becomes really a challenging, like long working hours, tight deadlines, I mean, I always tell myself how, how lucky I'm actually that uh, I have clients uh, trusting me and my team, and uh, things could actually be really, really a lot worse than they than they are.
1: Okay, thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, Emmanuel.
2: Thanks, Audrey, for for this kind of invitation. Thank you very much, Audrey.
1: My guests today were Mark Oltorf and Emmanuel Gouget, both partners at the law firm Pinsent Messons.
0: Thank you for listening to Brand & New, brought to you by the International Trademark Association. Be sure to tune in every two weeks on Tuesday for new episodes. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe and share it. We are always looking for new people to discover brand and new. And to learn more about INTA, its resources and events, please visit www.inta.org.